Camilo. Bien, ¿y tú, Lucy? ¿Todo bien? Excelente. Welcome to What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region. We broadcast every Wednesday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern on Code Pink's YouTube channel. Tonight, you can also find us on my Facebook uh, live stream and also um, on Medea Benjamin's live stream. And um, so let me introduce um, the theme tonight. And then I want to, we've got four fantastic speakers this evening. I have to say they're all terrific friends of mine. So I'm so pleased to have you all here. And, um, and they're all, uh, you know, really, really successful activists as well. So um, let me just tell you a little bit about the theme tonight. Um, the month of November is filled with elections across much of Central America and some of South America as well, beckoning many of us to say that the hemisphere will look very different economically and politically at the end of the month versus how it looks this evening. This month, we will witness elections on November 7, presidential elections in Nicaragua, legislative elections, in Argentina on November 14, presidential elections in Chile and regional and municipal elections in Venezuela on November 21st. And then we will close the month, November 28th, presidential elections in Honduras. Today's broadcast is, will focus on the upcoming elections in Nicaragua, Venezuela and Honduras. And we are going to discuss each in chronological order of the elections, so 7, 21, and 28. And I will say again, we are most fortunate to be joined in conversation um, by three very knowledgeable representatives of each of the three countries we're going to be discussing. Uh, but first, I want to introduce my co-host. Um, I want to introduce my co-host and then before we start each segment of the program, I will introduce the respective speakers to you so that it's clear um, who they are and what they're going to be talking about. So my co-host this evening is um, Fred Mills and Fred is the Deputy Director of the Council on Hemispheric Affairs, COHA, C-O-H-A dot org. And he's also Professor of Philosophy at Bowie State University. So welcome, Fred. Well, thank you. It's really an honor to be uh, on this program uh, sponsored by Code Pink and to be with the panelists who are each experts on the countries on which they're going to be speaking. I just wanted to provide uh, a brief analysis of the context. Uh, and basically what we're witnessing is a drive by Washington to recolonize Latin America. And uh, part of the strategy is to impose ever more economic hardship and subvert democratic institutions of nations that are seeking alternatives to what's really a failed neoliberal economic model. And this has implications for what's happening on the US-Mexican border. It's direct, these, these aggressions are directly related to the conditions which uproot thousands of the most vulnerable who are now seeking refuge in third countries, including the United States. Uh, but it must be said, despite the hardships that are imposed by this economic war against Venezuela, and now with the Renasa Act, we can anticipate 
against Nicaragua, and we know about the longstanding embargo against Cuba, this aggression is being met with a determined Bolivarian movement for regional independence and integration. And really for the peoples of Latin America and the Caribbean, there's no turning back the historic tide of self-determination, the effort of decolonization and the advancement of a multipolar world. Some refer to this as a pink tide, uh, but in essence, uh, it's a movement for which there's no turning back. As you mentioned, the presidential elections and parliamentary elections are going to happen soon in Nicaragua on the 7th. Uh, regional and municipal elections in Venezuela, November 21st. Uh, there's going to be general elections in Honduras, November 28th. Uh, and the U.S. is now uh, leading a campaign to delegitimize these democratic procedures. And this campaign's uh, in full force. Uh, it includes uh, a multi-dimensional strategy. And the U.S. can always count on its right-wing allies in the Organization of American States to do some of the dirty work. So it's critical to avoid another OAS orchestrated coup during the elections as occurred in Bolivia in 2019. So very briefly, uh, on the 16th, Washington intensified its economic war in Venezuela by kidnapping Alex Saab. He's a Colombian businessman and special envoy, Venezuelan envoy, who managed to circumvent illegal unilateral US sanctions to import vitally needed food, medicine, fuel, and other goods to Venezuela. Now it's important to note that this act of aggression against Caracas sabotaged talks that were underway between the government and opposition. Uh, it was taking place in Mexico and it dealt a serious blow to international conventions that protect diplomats. So really what, what's been happening uh, in the US relationship to Venezuela is on full display, the arrogance of the so-called rules-based order by means of which US exceptionalism manufactures its own form of legality to suit political aims. Now, in the case of Nicaragua, the US uh, Congress has passed new legislation, the Renacer Act, and this is to wage economic warfare like we saw in the case of Venezuela against the Sandinista government. And US continues to use NGOs as vehicles for building anti-government institutions. At the Council on Hemispheric Affairs, uh, Terry, we maintain that it's up to the people of Nicaragua to decide their own destiny, not hardliners in Miami, the State Department who are bent on installing a compliant neoliberal regime. And finally, in the case of Honduras, there's a historic opportunity for the people of this Central American nation to restore their democracy. Their constitutional government was undermined by US backed coup in 2009 against the democratically elected government of Manuel Zelaya. And last week, Honduras' Freedom and Refounding Party, Libre, leader Xiomara Castro and the Savior Party, uh, President Salvador Nasrallah, the president of that party, they forged an alliance. And this is very important. 
to face the neoliberal national party in the November 28th general elections. Uh, look, the US drive to dominate Latin America and the Caribbean is facing determined resistance from Bolivarian forces throughout the Americas. So I don't think we ought to be pessimistic, though we ought to be on guard. Progressive governments are making a comeback. Uh, there's a growing movement led by Mexico to lead the OAS in favor of a uniquely Latin American regional organization. The, organiza the organized expressions of popular power throughout the region make it clear that there's no surrendering their sovereignty and dignity to the recolonization of their territory. So I look forward to the insights of our panelists to make this situation even more clear and transparent. Thank you so much, Fred. You're always, I always love talking with you because you're always so clear and articulate in your thoughts. And um, I so appreciate your insight on, on Latin America and all, of, and all of your work. And it's really, I'm really honored that you had time to join us this evening. And I'm happy, I'm happy to see all of our guests tonight. I, I, I should mention to our audience that I'm actually um, broadcasting live from Managua, Nicaragua this evening. Um, I'm here uh, to observe the uh, presidential elections to be held Sunday, November 7th. So um, let's move to Nicaragua. Let's, uh, that was, those are the first elections this month. And so these will be presidential elections with incumbent Daniel Ortega, the front runner. And I wanna introduce our next guest, Camilo Mejia. Um, Camilo is a Nicaraguan activist based in Miami, Florida. He is a veteran and conscientious objector of the war in Iraq, where he witnessed crimes against humanity by the United States military. So um, Camilo, welcome to our program. I'm so pleased um, to be in conversation with you this evening. Thank you, Terry. It's a real honor to be here uh, with this co-panelist who are really amazing people. Uh, thank you, Fred, for that great context that you provided to set the stage. Um, I'd like to start by saying that uh, there are many ways to look at what's happening in Nicaragua right now with the upcoming elections on Sunday. We could look at it historically and go back to uh, the 1850s, you know, when the U.S. first set its eyes in Nicaragua because we have a naturally made uh, interoceanic canal that would make it very easy for people to go from east to west, you know, and find gold on the west coast of the U.S. So either to prevent uh, the building of a canal uh, that would rival the U.S. canal in Panama or to build a canal the U.S. has had, you know, a strategic interest in, in Nicaragua and, and from then on has not ceased to intervene in our country's affairs. So you, you, we could go back in history, you know, for centuries. Um, but I think that uh, right now in the present context, you know, and uh, I think that Fred provided a really great explanation of what that context is. Uh, but I believe that uh, with the neo neoliberal, uh, the globalist neoliberal policies having failed and Nicaragua being a nation that is so, so small and so poor in relation, especially to the United States, that is able to provide amazing benefits for all its citizens, including universal health care, um, education, you know, uh, production programs, you know, hunger and poverty eradication, uh, in contrast with the neoliberal system that basically 
uh, strangles uh, not only the poor, but also the middle class and even the upper class in, 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 in the countries that see their natural resources, their labor, and the, uh, the environment uh, completely destroyed uh, by neoliberal policies. And to have an example like Nicaragua uh, providing all these benefits to its citizens, providing its sovereign, uh, pr protecting its sovereignty, um, and then being able to meet not only the basic needs of every Nicaraguan, but to go beyond and you know, see amazing economic growth and things like that. Nicaragua represents an existential threat to the very idea of neoliberalism. neoliberalism. Um, but you know, going to a more recent context, I think that um, many people here, I would hope, remember the attempted coup in 2018, uh, where it was a largely uh, social media driven and, and I know our, our, our brothers and sisters in Venezuela are well aware of that because we learned a lot of the lessons that uh, they had learned in Venezuela. Uh, but a lot of that um, was basically social media driven. And we have seen also how the big tech companies have basically canceled so many different, like 1000 different accounts uh, in the lead up to the election. And I think that that's really, telling of you know where this is going because a lot of those accounts you know the groups that were canceled the accounts the individual accounts that were canceled the pages that were canceled uh, many of them basically originated in response to the misinformation yeah. campaign of 2018 uh, when mm -hmm. basically they took us off guard and we had to learn basically to fight you know through social media and to create pages where we could show that the, the violence you know, was actually being perpetrated by so-called peaceful protesters. And so to see uh, that in the lead up to the uh, Sunday election, there are deleting thousands of accounts, pages and groups. Um, it's basically you know, uh, an announcement that there's going to be unrest in Nicaragua and that they don't want the actual uh, Sandinista version to go out. You know, they want the public to have only one version of the story. Uh, so that's one thing that we're seeing, of course, today, the Renaissance Act uh, was approved by the House, you know, after being amend amended by the Senate. Um, and this is going to, once again, you know, provide the coercive measures that the US utilizes when they're not able to bend the will of the people to basically vote for governments that are subservient to US interests. And so what we're seeing right now has also been detailed in a document uh, titled RAIN, which stands for Responsive Assistance in Nicaragua, that was leaked by the US Embassy last year, if I'm not mistaken, around the July timeframe, um, in which the United States, uh, through the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, uh, through its financing, uh, basically foresees several different scenarios to destabilize uh, the government of, of uh, Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo. And they include natural, natu natural disasters, which we had two big hurricanes that hit us and hit Honduras to the north, and a public health crisis, which we have in the form of the COVID-19 pandemic, and then political turmoil, which is what we're basically seeing right now with the uh, disinformation campaign around the election that, in my opinion, seeks to destabilize the, the electoral process, knowing that, uh, you know, by all stretches of the imagination and also by all polls out there and surveys that have been conducted, 
the, you know, the Sandinista government has a very, you know, easy victory uh, coming up on Sunday. You know, we have, I believe the latest polls, you know, by MNR uh, consultants, you know, which have been doing, uh, conducting polls in, in Nicaragua for, in, in Central America and Latin America for a long time, uh, put the Sandinista, at the, the, the Sandinista party at 63%. Uh, in relation to the opposition, which I believe that the opposition has 23% uh, of the vote, you know, that they can count on. And that's split between different parties that don't even represent uh, necessarily U.S. interests in the nation because a lot of the, uh, the people who have been involved in the 2018 attempted coup, who were the recipients of USAID uh, funding to basically destabilize Nicaragua, not only in 2018, but also in the lead up to the elections uh, who have been arrested, you know, they never really had unity. They never really had official political parties. They had no political platforms or anything like that. Um, but even uh, the opposition outside of that opposition, you know, that has been dismantled, you know, in its effort to destabilize the country in the, con in the context of the election, they really have no chance of winning. Um, and so what we're seeing is that, you know, um, lacking all other um, recourses, the United States only has coercion left and, and lies and manipulation of information. And so that's basically more or less what we're seeing right now is that, you know, we're seeing on one hand, we're seeing the, uh, uh, the blackout in terms of like the media, uh, the social media cancellation. Of course, you know, the U.S. propaganda machine with global reach has already been added, you know, basically delegitimizing de the government of uh, Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo. And we have the sanctions. Um, and, you know, God knows what else we can we can expect to happen. I know that the uh, the State Department issued a warning to U.S. citizens in Nicaragua telling them to stay off the streets between November 5th and November 7th. So we don't really know what's happening. Uh, but, you know, like Fred said, there's no turning back. And, you know, this is not our first time around the block. We have been fighting U.S. aggression and U.S. intervention for a long time. And we're going to continue what we do. You know, we're going to continue fighting for our, our revolution. And we're going to continue fighting for our democracy and our sovereignty. I'm sorry, folks. Um, thank you, Camilo. I, I can tell you I'm sitting here in Managua tonight and the streets are very calm and it's been, I think it's been fascinating and horrifying simultaneously to watch what's happened. I arrived on Sunday and, you know, Monday was that State Department communique and then Tuesday was the shutdown of all those Facebook accounts. And now today from Washington DC was the passing of the Renaissance Act in, in the US House of Representatives. And that act was simultaneously introduced in late May, June in both houses of Congress. So you can really see uh, how everything is, is you know, basically orchestrated, these simultaneously, you know, simultaneous events or contiguous events. So let's, um, so thank you and stay with us because we're gonna wanna have, you know, a, a, a more in-depth conversation with all, with everyone. Um, so next let's move to um, the elections on um, November 21st in, um, in Venezuela. And those are, will be regional and municipal elections. And um, tonight we're joined by my Code Pink Latin America team, um, teammate Leonardo Flores. 
Leo holds a bachelor's degree in philosophy from the University of Maryland. He dropped out of the master's program at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy to work as an analyst on US-Venezuelan relations. He was born in Venezuela and maintains close ties to social movements that have transformed the country over the past 20 years. So welcome, Leo. I'm glad to be sharing the program with you tonight. Thanks so much, Terry, and thanks, Fred, for also hosting. And also, I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, the group of DC, uh, Latin American immigrants in DC who had this idea for this webinar to kind of really demonstrate what's going on in the region this month. Um, so thank you for that. So in Venezuela, November 21st, we're having what's called mega elections. They're called mega elections because there are elections for governors, mayors, regional legislative councils, and municipal councils. Overall, there's 3,082 positions at stake. And there are 70,000 candidates running from 104 parties. The vast majority of those belong to the opposition. Uh, and we have observers, electoral observation mission from the European Union, uh, UN panel of electoral experts will be there. CELA, which is the Council of Latin American Electoral Experts will be there as well observing the Carter Center and observers from you know, dozens of countries, including Russia, Turkey, and the US. I know you, uh, Fred and you, Terry, will be there as well mm -hmm. to observe. And these elections are pretty important because you know, generally you know, gubernatorial elections in different countries, they kind of go escape our radar because you, we think, oh, they're not that important in terms of global geopolitics. But these are important because it's the first time since 2017 that the entire opposition is fully participating in elections. And so I was going to just run you through the, the timeline real quick from elections from 2017 until uh, three weeks from now, because I think it's kind of important to get a sense of how the country has developed uh, in that interim. So in July 2017, there was elections for the National Constituent Assembly. These came about because Venezuela was in a period of crisis in, in, in 2017. There were very violent street protests promoted and financed and supported by what we know as the extreme opposition in Venezuela. And these protests basically died the day of the elections. And the opposition boycotted those elections. They said it was unconstitutional, despite the fact that it wasn't, because the president has the power to call for that, those elections. And it was, a, in my opinion, I think it was a huge mistake for the opposition to boycott those elections because they might have won and they might have been able to help redraft the, uh, the constitution. But then in October 2017, Venezuela held gubernatorial elections. And these are important because, as I mentioned before, this was the last time the opposition fully participated. They were, they being the opposition, they were framing this as a referendum on President Maduro. They said if they won the majority of states that he should resign. Their pollsters were predicting a landslide victory. You know, they thought they, would get, they were gonna take anywhere between 18 and 20 of Venezuela's 23 states. But the reality was the exact opposite. Chavismo won in 18 states. And a close inspection of the vote showed that Chavismo also won in nearly 90% of the country's municipalities. So as a result of that vote, the next election was in December, 2017, when Venezuela held mayoral and regional elections. But since they had already lost in 90% of the country's municipalities, it was such a humiliating defeat that the opposition called for a boycott of those elections. Except in reality, it wasn't a true boycott. It was a sham boycott because what we had was opposition candidates. They ran in the municipalities where they thought they were gonna win. 
but they didn't register under their own parties. They registered under smaller parties so they could, they could maintain the fiction that the, the opposition had boycotted these elections. You know, again, Chavismo won in a landslide victory. They took 308 of the country's 335 mayoralties. The next elections were the infamous, now quote unquote infamous, May 2018 Venezuela presidential elections. And you know, the first thing I should note is that these elections were actually brought forward a year. They were supposed to be held in 2019, but the opposition had spent years saying that they wanted new elections now. So the Maduro government said, okay, let's hold them this year instead of next year. Let's push them up, hopefully bring more peace and stability to the country. But unfortunately, the Trump administration basically orchestrated a boycott of those elections. In late January, 2018, as the Venezuelan government and opposition were about to sign a comprehensive landmark deal that encompassed everything from the economy to elections, the US sabotaged those talks. Secretary of, then Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said he would welcome a coup. The US hinted at an oil embargo. And the US, the State Department also said it would not recognize Venezuela's presidential elections that year. This was in January. It was months before the elections were held and weeks before they were even announced. Already the US was kind of poisoning the, the, the elections there. And additionally, the Trump administration pressured opposition politicians not to run. In fact, Henry Ramos Alup, who was the, the president at the time of Acción Democrática, Democratic Action, one of the major opposition parties in Venezuela, he was asked by the press if he was going to run. And he said, why would I run if the U.S. government won't recognize my victory? So they had even made it clear to opposition candidates that they wouldn't recognize that victory. And at the time, it was very confusing. Why would the, the, the U.S. do this? Well, the idea was to discredit the elections so much that the Trump administration could then impose a new president once President Maduro's term ran out in January 2019. That's when you know they named Juan Guaido as the interim president and, and this whole fiction of the parallel government, government began. So already in the previous year, the, those elections were supposedly discredited by the US because they had this strategy for Juan Guaido in place. But that said, an important sector of the opposition did run and they won, nine, they won 3 million votes between them uh, compared to uh, President Maduro who took, I believe, around 6 million votes in that, on that occasion. Then the next elections were December, 2020. Uh, Venezuela held legislative elections. I think you were there, Terry, as an observer as well. Mm -hmm. Again, there was a partial opposition boycott by the main parties, but they were also kind of caught between a heart a rock in a hard place because they knew that if they participated, it would be de facto recognition that the electoral system works, meaning that therefore President Maduro was legitimate. But they also couldn't participate because the Trump, the Trump administration strategy was to boycott. And by the time they had to register for the elections, it wasn't clear whether Trump was gonna win here in the US in 2020. So if they participated and Trump won, then it would be basically a slap in the face to Trump who was telling them not to participate. Again, though, it wasn't a full boycott. The moderate opposition, and I call them moderate because they're, uh, this is a sector of the opposition, opposition that doesn't want to burn the country down. They haven't called for an invasion. They've denounced sanctions. And that's how they're moderate because, I mean, some of these guys are very neoliberal to the extent that they would make University of Chicago economists blush. But anyway, these moderates, they won. That, excuse me, they ran. They won 20 seats. And so this was a massive, massive victory for Chavismo despite the relatively low turnout. And the fact is that the opposition actually took credit for this low turnout. The opposition, the ex more extreme opposition led by, by Juan Guaido, they portrayed that as evidence of their own popular support. So that leads us into now, uh, November 21st, these elections. These are gonna be the 26th elections in 23 years for Venezuela. 
So, I mean, all this talk about a dictatorship with no free elections, it's, it's total BS. The latest polls show, uh, or, or they're projecting rather, between somewhere between 40, 50% voter turnout. I think if there's low voter turnout in here, you know, I might, it's, it's hard to predict elections in Venezuela, but I'm pretty confident saying that if there's low participation, say less than 40%, it's gonna be Chavismo winning in a landslide because the Chavista vote is very kind of secure and they understand the importance of elections. If there's kind of good participation, which I'm gonna characterize as somewhere between 40 to 50%, I think it's very unlikely we're gonna get higher than 50% participation. I still think Chavismo has a good uh, opportunity to win a majority of the races. And in fact, opposition pollster Luis Vicente Leon from a, a firm called Data Analysis, he said that the, uh, the chances of the opposition winning are infinitesimal. Uh, that said, I, I think the opposition is going to do better than it did in 2017 when it only won five of 23 states and uh, 27 of the 335 mayoralties. I think there's going to be a little bit more opposition victories. But the big outstanding question is, after four years of boycotts, can the extreme right draw its people out? I mean, if we look at the turnout rates in over these last four years, you know, those gubernatorial elections, when everyone participated, it was 61% turnout. Two months after that, turnout for the municipal elections dropped to 47%. A year later for the presidential elections, it was 46%. Year, uh, two years after that for le legislative elections, it was 31%. So this strategy of boycotting elections has really depressed voter turnout, but that doesn't necessarily translate into you know, support for, for these extreme opposition tactics. Because in part, because the opposition is completely split. So right now in, the, in these elections, they're running as two major coalitions. The MOOD, the Democratic Unity Roundtable, which is kind of the uh, traditional coalition of, of the past 10 or 15 years in Venezuela. And now the, the so-called the Democratic Alliance. And the Democratic Alliance is made up of parties and candidates that participated in 2018 and 2020, and that have been engaging in ongoing dialogue with the uh, Maduro government. I mean, the opposition is actually like running multiple gubernatorial candidates in at least nine states. And in the state of Miranda, which is, you know, right where part of Caracas is, is, is located, there's two opposition candidates who are slinging all sorts of mud for each other. Uh, you know, an opposition candidate just held uh, a press conference yesterday accusing another opposition candidate of having campaign rallies where they were giving away motorcycles, phones, and boxes of food. So, I mean, this sort of infighting is going to be really difficult for the opposition to overcome to the extent that now they're kind of changing the goalposts and they're saying, well, this, is, this election isn't so much about winning, it's about building unity within the opposition. And it's about finding new leadership within the opposition as well. Uh, for the side on the side of Chavismo, you know, Chavismo is mo mostly united. There's the main coalition called the Great Patriotic Poll, which includes the PSUV, and they're expected to take the bulk of the Chavista vote. There is also a smaller coalition known as the APR, Alternativa Popular Revolucionaria. They're running a separate slate of candidates as they did in 2020, but they got only one seat in those elections, taking less than 3% of the vote. So it's not expected that they're going to split the Chavista vote. And just, you know, very briefly, a bit about the economic situation because that's obviously going to determine well uh, have a, an important factor in, in voter turnout right now inflation is down to single digits for the first time in four years you had credit suisse projecting 5.5 percent growth for venezuela in 2021 oil prediction uh, production continues to recover which is being helped by shipments of diluents from iran 
the parallel exchange rate has stabilized and 50% of Venezuelans, this was a poll in August, 50% of Venezuelans said their life had improved compared to one or two years ago. Uh, and so I think that that kind of very shows very clearly where we're at in terms of the political and the economic uh, situation in Venezuela. And one last point that I kind of forgot to mention and as to why the opposition is in dire straits, 76% of Venezuelans reject sanctions. And the entire mood coalition is made up of parties that have called for more and more sanctions against the Venezuelan people. And I think that's gonna hurt them quite a bit at the polls. Well, it's a, it's a call, you know, of basically hybrid war against your own people when you're having <laughs> sanctions. You know, there's one thing that, well, there's so many things you said we'll have to talk when all of you are done, um, when our panel discussion presentations are done, but um, this finding the leadership of the, the, the opposition trying to find new leadership and trying to unify itself, you know, that is something we heard. You were gracious enough to arrange for a meeting with the opposition uh, for our delegation to Venezuela in December of 2020. And we were able to meet with those parties of the opposition that actually participated in the National Assembly elections last year. And they actually admitted that. These were the parties that participated and believe in the electoral process and believe in the Venezuelan constitution, which we don't hear much about those people in the United States. Um, but they, that was one of the things they flat out said was that they have to, you know, have, have to figure, they have to evolve and develop themselves as politicians, as candidates, as, as, as you know, parties. So, um, and also you and Fred are both, um, excuse me, you and Camilo have both talked about countries, Nicaragua and Venezuela both, who have governments that invest in their people, a people over profit um, system, economic system led by the state. And we're seeing this, and Fred touched on this, that we're seeing this joke, this, 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 um, cra this clash throughout the hemisphere, I would say throughout the world, but specifically in the hemisphere, of the Americas where these governments that want to be 100, want to manage 100% privatized economies where the profit comes first and the people come second and these systems that are putting their people first. And it's a real clash throughout the hemisphere right now. And we're hoping Lucy that the Hondurans will be able to, um, to vote in a, a government, a president and a government that is going to promote its people over profits, which we have seen the people in Honduras suffer for so long now over a privatized economic system. It's just been devastating to the people, the, the environment, and the economic well-being. So let's um, let's move to Honduras. Those elections are on November 28th. These are presidential elections, and we are joined by Lucy Pagawada Quesada. Lucy is the New York City Department Education Teacher and Human Rights Defender. She is the coordinator of Partido Libre US-Canada, and she is the producer of the program Voices of Resistance, which broadcasts every Sunday, 1 p.m. Eastern on WBAI 99.5 FM, New York City. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, compañera Teri. And, uh... What an honor it is to be in your program. It's the first time that I'm in your program. However, you've been in my program so many times. I know, you're and so everyone wonderful. here, everyone here has been to my program. 
every single one of you. So thank we you love so much. you. And, and we love your oh, program. Oh, thank you. And, and, and I really <laughs> hope to continue, um, you know, these amazing interviews that we're always having. Well, in, uh, in neoliberalism, uh, people don't come second. People never come. It's not about never. people. They're, they're never present in, in the idea of uh, neoliberalism. And as you mentioned, um, Honduras is 25 days away from um, entering a fourth election after the U.S. Uh, back coup in 2009 under the uh, presidency of President Barack Obama and his Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And um, we have to understand that in Honduras, we cannot speak about the present without going back to what happened and everything that that coup actually uh, has meant for the people of Honduras. So for our audience, the repression of June 2009, for our audience, yes. 2009. Yes, 2009, 2009, 12 years, 12 years, and we're still standing very strongly against the coup and against um, U.S. In imperialism, which was the perpetrator of this coup. And going back to this idea of governments that actually think about the people, that was basically one of the main reasons why uh, the U.S. Uh, under uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton decided that they were going to kidnap President Celaya in the middle of the night uh, in his pajamas on June 28, 2009, because he was actually doing a government that looked out for the people. Part of it had to do with um, importing oil from Venezuela, because President Celaya signed in with Petro Caribe, and he had also signed with Alba. So the coup against President Celaya was also a coup against Venezuela. Let's not forget that. Mm -hmm. And this is the reason why the people of Honduras uh, rose up. So to us, the fact that today, 12 years after the coup, we are still here standing stronger than ever means that the coup failed because neoliberalism has failed in Honduras. And the people of Honduras can no longer take it. The people of Honduras are looking for alternatives, just like most people in Latin America are. We cannot forget Bolivia. We have to see what has happened in Bolivia, the amazing government of the indigenous people of Bolivia. And this is a trend. It's a trend that has been going on in Latin America for the past 20 years. So Honduras is not an exception to the rule. Honduras is only part of that big movement that is looking for alternatives against failures of neoliberalism and capitalism in our countries. We don't want it, we refuse it, and we are fighting to, to go for an alternative. And so we went from having a, a, an amazing popular movement, the resistance, to turning that movement into a political party because we believe that we could do this in a democratic way, right? That they say we have to use the democratic means. So that's what we are doing. And of course, the United States will always find the ways to confront the people of Honduras. And um, as I said, we this is the fourth election, the first election after the coup in 2009, November of 2009, we did not participate because obviously we didn't have a party and we were abstaining from that brutality because those elections happened in the middle of all the repression and the people being killed, the women being raped on the streets. The, the repression was brutal by the military and the police, which to me in Honduras, the police and the army only serves for a couple of things, to repress, to kill, and to disappear the people, not to protect the people. We already know that. So those elections happen in the, in the midst of that. But then the, the movement that, that came out, out of that 
opposition against the U.S. imperialist coup, um, turned into a political party. So in 2012, we created the Libre Party, and we went into elections in 2013. And that was the first fraud that we suffered, and it was the Libre Party with Xiomara Castro de Celaya as our candidate, right? And the United States intervened. They imposed the National Party in 2010 with Porfirio Lobosos. We called it the inflated president, el presidente inflado, Porfirio Lobo, because it was all, we abstained, and he, he pretty much ran on his own. That was Hillary Clinton's um, candidate, a narco, the first narco that she actually supported in Honduras. Why do I say a narco? Because his son, his son, Fabio Lobo, it's, uh, you know, in, in prison. Um, you know, he was sentenced uh, for 30 something years in a, in a New York prison. So that was the first narco. Then later in 2017, we ran against with the elections and we formed the first alliance. Uh, um, Compañero Fred referred to that. And, um, you know, there was fraud again. And this is when they, um, the, the United States uh, embassy, the, the government supported and uh, imposed Juan Orlando Hernandez for um, the, the second time, right? He ran for the second time. There was there is no re-election in Honduras, and he he um, actually fired uh, the people in court, the 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 judges, and those judges were able to say that he his new judges, right, his own judges were able to say that he could run. So when Orlando Hernandez ran for the second time, and um, and again the U.S. Uh, embassy, right, uh, declared Juan Orlando Hernandez. Uh, the winner, right, against uh, Narrala, who, who had won the elections. So what we see is a pattern of uh, um, U.S. occupation in Honduras that has been historically. It's not just the 12 years ago. We're talking about, you know, from the very early 1900s in Honduras, when, um, you know, early 1900s, uh, the United States turned Honduras into a banana uh, republic. Mm -hmm. and, and we saw the abuses of um the, the United States companies against the Honduran people. You know, those, those were in place of enslavement of the Honduran people. And since the United States has always decided in Honduras who's going to be ruling the show, until President Celaya came along and said, enough, enough, we, we need to defend our dignity. We need to do something. And so the price was that he was um, expelled from his own country. He was, you know, taken out and uh, we continue to fight. So now we're going back the fourth time, and this is the third time for the Libre Party. Now, Xiomara Castro again is the candidate, and uh, Salvador Narrala joined again, right, with uh, the Pino Party. And we have this um, presidential coalition only at the presidential level. And um, we've learned from our mistakes as the movement, you know, we've, we've come along, and now we are more organized than ever. In in Honduras, but also outside of Honduras. And I'm, I'm a testimony of that because uh, I've been in this process. It's not that I read it or somebody told me, but I've been invested my entire life, just like my family and, and, and the entire movement that I represent here uh, in the United States and other parts of Latin America, and even in Europe. This is, this is an amazing uh, movement, the, the movement of the Honduran people. So we're ready for the 28th. Uh, we know that um, the embassy is there. But this time around, they're not as um, aggressive as they have been. And um, we think part of it is because they're probably fed up of Juan Orlando Hernandez because Juan Orlando is another uh, drug dealer. He's another, you know, uh, drug lord in Honduras. So it, it's this pattern of the United States supporting these, these, um, 
this, this drug uh, thugs in Honduras. Tony Hernandez, uh, Juan Rolando Hernandez's brother, also was sentenced in a, in a New York in a New York court for uh, trafficking tons of cocaine and, and weapons into the United States. So I think that the United States right now in Honduras is a little bit conflicted by the fact that they are they have been throughout all these years supporting this this uh, this corrupt thugs, which not that the United States cares much about who, who they support, whether it is a corrupt government or not, but I feel that because the, the movement is so strong in Honduras, they can no longer hold what, what they've been trying to hold for all these years. And right now we see that the, um, the embassy is kind of cornered. We don't know what they're gonna do, but they're not as aggressive as they, has, they have been. And um, as a Honduran, as a Honduran here in the United States and a citizen, a citizen of the United States, uh, this is my message for, for the United States government, right? Because Pam, uh, Kamala Harris supposedly is concerned about these caravans, right? Because Honduras, the, the levels of poverty, you know, since the coup mm -hmm. that have been deepening. And this is pretty much what they want to do to countries like Venezuela and Nicaragua and um, Cuba, right? 60 years of, of, a, of a horrendous uh, criminal blockade and, and what they did in Bolivia. But this is what they want to do. They want, they want to turn these countries into, into other Honduras. They want to have real narco traffickers like Juan Orlando Hernandez in these countries. They're talks to play their to play their game, right? So right now what we see is that we're not sure about the role of, of the US embassy. They're not as aggressive as they have been. That doesn't mean that we trust them, but we do have a message as the Honduran people in Honduras and here too. Um, I'm just gonna read you the the uh, the conclusion of one of one, of an article that I just recently wrote, and that our compañeros from Struggle and Lucha published. That is it's really cool, and I thank them for doing that. And you can find this article on the on Struggle and Lucha. It's called 12 Years After the Coup: Honduran Resistance Fights for Fair Elections," and that's all that we want. Because if they if they will to allow us, and I mean the United States and its puppets there, the um, these um, representers, because they're not even ambassadors. The United States doesn't even have an ambassador in Honduras. This is how bad they treat us. It's like, we don't even, you know, we don't even deserve to have a real don't even rank for an ambassador. <laughs> yeah, they, no, it, it, Honduras is so, it's, it's such a, you know, uh, whatever disposable country that they don't even deserve to have an ambassador. Yet um, these, even these representatives like that, even though they were not ambassadors, they will they will run the show. These people will come in and supervise the polls. Can you imagine mm -hmm. somebody coming from from Honduras to try to tell the United States how to run their elections? I mean, that's I crazy. Wish. The, the United <laughs> States made such a big fuss about Russia, like sniffing into their elections, right, and and, and sniffing into their demo, yeah. democratic process. Yet they want to they want to run our elections. They want to run our show, and this is how they do it. So, but they're concerned. They say about what's happening with the caravans. And the crisis at the border, right? They 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 want to do something. They say so. We tell them if you really want to do something, leave us alone as countries. But this is my message to the United States government, as I put it in this um in this um article. I said to the U.S. government and the embassy in Honduras, we say if you do not want to con to continue to con to continue facing right the massive exodus of people from your failed imperial displaced people from your failed uh, neoliberal policies in Honduras because the caravans are an absolute result 
of the failed um, neoliberal system in Honduras and US imperial um, failed policies as well. And what has happened there is that the United States has turned our country into an exporter of displaced people. And if we don't change the situation right now in the country, we, after the 28th, Teddy and Leonardo and Camilo and Fred, we will have an Honduras that perhaps will look very different than the Honduras that we know right now, because it, it just hasn't been enough to impose these neoliberal failed policies in Honduras deepen the mystery that we have as a country that has people leaving massively in the caravans because they take they cannot take it anymore. They cannot take the violence. They cannot take the abuse. They cannot take the, the violence of poverty and everything that the people of Honduras are facing right now. On top of it, this narco government headed by Juan Orlando Hernandez has sold a big part of our territory to this new, new business called Las Sedes or zones of jobs and development. What does that mean? That in Honduras, th these transnationals will build um, inner cities, inner cities in which the Honduran people cannot live anymore. And these people don't care. They have given away our territory. And, and these, uh, these new cities that they will build within Honduras, they will have their own governments, they will have their own laws, they will have their own um, uh, uh, Political, not political system, but legal systems in which they will not respond to, to, the, to the original uh, Honduran constitution. They will have their own mini constitutions. So we'll have within Honduras places like, um, I don't know, Shanghai, Dubai, you know, super developed uh, within, within Honduran cities that us and, as Hondurans, we're not going to be able to, to go. They say that if you want to, in the future, join one of those, uh, one of those model cities, you will have to have an income of at least 60,000 a month, $60,000 a month. Who's gonna make that kind of money in, yes, in Honduras? Nobody in Honduras, nobody born and raised in Honduras. Nobody so born few. and raised in Honduras. No, no self-respected Honduras will have that kind of money. So this is what we are facing. We, we practically have lost our country to these narcos. And this is the kind of, of uh, thugs that the United States government is facing there, is supporting there. And this is why we tell them, if you don't want to have your crisis, what they call it their crisis, of the displaced people of neoliberalism, leave us alone. Allow them to elect yeah. the people that we want and let us be you know, what we want to be. Let us have the leaders that we want. Take away your hands of our countries and leave us alone. You know, But this is the problem with the United States. They don't want to leave us alone because they want what's there from us. They want our resources. They want our land. And but they hate us. They don't want the people, but they want our resources and, and they want our land. But in Honduras, we're fighting for that. And the government that Xiomara is going to lead calls for all of that. These people have to get out of our country. These, these you know, uh, business people who purchase the land, supposedly they purchase it, they're gonna have to get out. And uh, we need to reclaim our dignity. We need to reclaim our sovereignty and the United States needs to stay away. That's what we're saying. If you want to fix, if you want to help us, just get the hell out of our country. Well, Lucy, I think you're going to follow Shiamara as president someday. <laughs> I love you. I so, and I, I will say, I think as you know, um, I'll be in Honduras on November 28th. So, 
I will be Thank very you. proud to be there and um, and witness your presidential elections on the 28th. And um, I'm always so thankful for your activism and and your love of your work and your and your and your passion and your knowledge. Um, everyone's knowledge that's been on the panel this evening. You've all, you're all so great. And like I told the audience when we started, it's just been wonderful to have a panel of guests who you know, are such fabulous activists, but also I will say all of you are just such great personal friends as well. And I'm just really honored mm -hmm. that you all had time to join us this evening. Um, when we started the program, Fred had asked, uh, asked me if there'd be time uh, for some questions and specifically from him. And so um, why don't we take a few minutes and, um, and, uh, and have a, a quick Q&A We'll have Fred start and for the audience, if you're watching us on Zoom, you can put your question in the chat. And also if you're watching us on Code Pink YouTube Live, you can make a comment in the chat as well. And I'll be sure to uh, check both platforms for any questions and comments. So okay. Fred, welcome back to the conversation. Thank you, very informative. Uh, the panelists really, I think, enlighten us about the present situation. Uh, just one question for Camilo and one for Leonardo. Um, Camilo, uh, 2018, um, which you described as a, uh, attempted coup, a golpismo, really at the time uh, divided some of the progressive forces in the United States. Uh, so uh, the mainstream media campaign was pretty successful. Um, in uh, dominating uh, the imagery of what was going on in 2018. Uh, so my question for you is how do you respond um, to those uh, who are, you know, um, uh, still we can say progressive forces that uh, had these uh, very intense misgivings about 2018? Because I think you began to address and it's very important given that we're facing another media campaign in the present moment. Um, and a question for Leonardo is, uh, you mentioned a poll that said that for 50% of uh, Venezuelans, uh, life was getting somewhat better uh, since August. And so we also received reports from United Nations uh, Rapporteur that uh, the situation is still extremely difficult. Um, and part of the, the reason that we're so intensely against these sanctions uh, um, is because of the hardship. So maybe you could just uh, um, go a little bit more into what you think the implications of that poll are. Um, and if we, if we um, can compare that to these other testimonies uh, that we're receiving about the situation in uh, Venezuela. Okay, Camilo. Thank you, Fred. Uh, that's a really that's a really great question. I'll try to be brief because I know we don't have that much time. Uh, but um, this is part of that effort, you know, that we have been working with people on the ground in Nicaragua, a lot of solidarity workers who have lived there for decades and continue to um, uh, do ex an excellent job as international uh, internationalists in Nicaragua. You know, we have published a couple of books. Uh, on the attempted coup and uh, you know some of the things that happened afterwards. Uh, I believe that we have been very successful in taking over 
social media platforms at least in Nicaragua. And that's one of the reasons why they have canceled so many accounts. Uh, programs like this, I think, are really great. And then also, you know, um, when people tend to fall for the, the here and now, you know, what they're seeing, you know, which is the result of, you know, this propaganda campaign, I think it always helps to point out to history uh, and, you know, show to people how history is basically repeating itself. Uh, when you look at U.S. intervention, uh, and even if you go back to the Spanish colony, if you want to go really that far, and you're going to see that, you know, the same players are in, you know, uh, a part of the, uh, our own stage right now, the bourgeoisie, um, the, uh, the same political groups, you know, of the past, you know, that were fighting for power and leaving the poor out at all, at all times, the, uh, the oligarchy, the Catholic Church, the, the hierarchical Catholic Church, and of course the U.S., um, and then also follow the money trail uh, and see how a lot of the groups, if not all of the groups, are connected to U.S. money via USAID and, and National Endowment for Democracy. So this is the work that we're doing, uh, you know, working in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in places like Honduras and, of course, Venezuela, Cuba, et cetera, uh, so that we can show a larger context, so we can show a historical context and show so that we can empower people to uh, with the tools that they that they need in order to to understand you know the new landscape in which you know conventional war it's not not even a part of the picture you know but we're looking at lawfare or hybrid war or soft coups or however you want to call it you know it's um it's it's really hard to understand for people especially because the the usa money and the net money uh, have created an entire ecosystem of um uh, on the surface, you know, progressive organizations, you know, dedicated to environmental protection and women's rights and worker rights and peasant rights and whatnot that have been trained and financed by the U.S. basically to lend that, um, that face of, you know, progressivism, uh, when in reality, you know, they're, they're fronts for U.S. interventionism in Nicaragua. Uh, but those are some of the things that, that we do that we will continue to do. You know, it's, it's an ongoing struggle and, you know, we learn as we go. Because, you know, what we're doing today, it, it's very different from what we were doing two or three years ago. Thank you. Okay, and then, so the poll I mentioned, it was 50% of Venezuelans said their life had improved compared to one or two years ago. And that poll was taken in August. And I think that does square in with everything the UN's been saying about the impact of the sanctions, because... Venezuela's economy was completely devastated by the sanctions. And I think the poll, what it reflects is the fact that the Venezuelan government has been able to overcome the sanctions in important ways, uh, most importantly through the CLAP program, which is uh, boxes of food and other essentials that uh, 7 million families receive every month in Venezuela, 7 million families in a country of 30 million people. And so through programs like the CLAP and through really you know, the intense efforts of the government to restart oil production, we're seeing a bit, a little bit of growth in the economy, it's a little bit of stability. That said, you know, I didn't mean to paint a rosy picture at all. The economy is still a disaster compared to what it was five, six years ago. And that's entirely due to the US economic war. Uh, there's such brutal policies that have, you know, killed uh, 100,000 Venezuelans, according to Alfred Desaias, former special UN rapporteur. They killed 40,000 Venezuelans in the first year of the Trump sanctions alone, according to the Center for Economic and Policy Research. So these, the sanctions are still having a really devastating impact, particularly on the healthcare sector in Venezuela. And, and you know, we still have rolling blackouts, shortages of water, uh, shortage of internet dropouts, transportation issues. So the issues 
you know, are, are still all still there, of course, but Venezuela has been resilient in the face of those sanctions. Uh, and yet, you know, I think there's still a lot of work to be done on the sanctions front. As you mentioned in your opening remarks, um, the Biden administration kind of sabotaged the ongoing dialogue between the government and the, the extreme right with the extradition of Alex Saab or the kidnap of Alex Saab, I should say. So, so the sanctions remain kind of an important factor that affects the daily life of every single Venezuelan. Things are slightly better. I don't think Venezuela can possibly ever recover economically if the sanctions are not lifted. Can, can I just make a personal comment as I listen to Leo and listening to the impact of the sanctions? And as you know, I have visited your country, you know, at least once over the last 15, 20 years and have seen the full cycle. And I have to say to you and all of your fellow countrymen, it is the most profound thing to witness how strong the Venezuelan people are in their resistance. It, it is a, you, it's palpable when you're on the streets, you, 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 a, an hour on the streets of Caracas and you can just feel that the Venezuelan people, they totally understand politically and economically what's happening to them. They understand hybrid war, they understand US interventionism, don't want it. And, um, and really it's, it's, um, it's a profound thing to witness. I, I, I don't personally know anyone except those of you living in Venezuela who could really quite honorably survive this war that's been against the country uh, through, through sanctions. It's really, uh, it's, it's a profound thing to witness. Um, and you all deserve a lot of credit for that, for surviving it so far. So, um, you know, there's something Lucy that you said that, and, and, and now that Leo has brought in, uh, brought back up Alex, so I totally forgot that Mel, that President Zelaya was kidnapped in his pajamas, in the coup. And so he just, you know, this kidnapping technique that the United States uses, this overjudicial reach um, of the United States throughout the world. Can any of you comment on that? I mean, we've seen this, we've seen this, what is called extradition, but a flat out kidnap of Alex Saab. Um, just want to add, uh, just want to add Aristide was also- Oh, uh, yes, we could say thank kidnapped. you. He was a democratically elected uh, president of Haiti. Yes. And that was actually the, the plan for Operation Gideon in Venezuela, the, the, the so-called mercenary invasion. They, they planned to kidnap President Maduro and take him out of the country. The same thing happened in, in 2002 in Venezuela when the plan was to kidnap Chavez, and they actually did. They did, didn't manage to take him out of the country. He, he stayed in the country. But, but it's, a, it's a common theme we see uh, in terms of U.S. intervention. In Noriega, we remember Panama. Uh, whatever you think of Noriega, he too is flown out of the country. And in Honduras, it's, it's, um, it's easy for the United States to do that because let's not forget that the United States has the largest U.S. air base of Central America in Honduras, um, Sotocano or Palmerola, which uh, hosts uh, approximately 600 effective militaries. And it is also what I call the cave of the Southern commander, El Comando Sur, um, La Cueva, the cave of um, the Southern commander. So when President Zelaya was taken out of his uh, house, uh, you know, gone, gone down, right? He was taken into that military base in Comayagua, that's where he was taken. And, um, you know, later we learned that, that a phone call was made and the, uh, to the Pentagon, and this is when, uh, 
they were ordered to 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 take him and and to drop him in the airport of Costa Rica because initially the order was to was to kill President Zelaya, but then they took him they took him there. Uh, this um, uh, killer Romeo Vasquez Velasquez, who's the the general who actually kidnapped President Zelaya, said that the order was to kill him. So that was supposed to be a magnicide, not not a, not just a kidnap, but a magnicide of the president. And then he got nervous, and so that's why he he took him he took him to to who gave him the order, the the people the owners of the military base, and that's where they said just just take him and drop him in in Costa Rica, and this is where uh, you know President Zelaya was missing for some hours, and then early in the morning that's when we learned that he was in the airport. This is where he gave the the initial um, uh, you know interview that. This is what had happened to him. He was still in his pajamas when he gave his first uh, interviews at the airport in Costa Rica. So, Lucy, President Joe Biden you... was the vice president. Let's not forget that, right? Exactly. Biden was vice yeah. president. Let's not forget that. Uh huh. Lucy, can I ask you about electoral observation in Honduras? Because I know that the OAS will be there, and we saw what the OAS did in Bolivia. And what the OAS itself, how they kind of folded in the press, to the pressure of the Trump administration in 2017 when there's so many irregularities. Is that, is that a fear again, that the OAS is going to somehow interfere in this process? Well, Xiomara has already been meeting with a lot of the, uh, the delegations that are there, and the OAS is one of them that she already met with. And um, th they normally don't do anything prior to the elections. They intervene the day off and towards the countdown. This is when they come in and do the job. So they're there, they're there already. And um, they have met with, with our candidate, but we don't really know what they have a stake this year, but they have always been uh, the players. What I can tell you is that Al Mugre, do you know Mugre, the Mugre? that you get the, the disgusting stuff in your nails. Al Magro, Al Mugre, we call him. He, um, he, he met with the, with the, yeah, I know, right? Only those who are bilingual can get the joke, al mugre. And I, I'm a language teacher, so I, I'm sorry. I, I, I do these kind of things with language. I think humor is important too. You know, especially when we attack the enemy, it's good to kill them with humor. So al mugre um, met with the candidate for Juan Orlando Hernandez in Washington. This was uh, in around uh, August. He met with Anahri um, Alfura, who is the Asfura, who is the candidate of the uh, National Party, who is supposedly the successor of Juan Orlando Hernandez to us. They're the same. They're the same cartel, right? And so Almugre came forward, Almagro came forward and said that he had met with the candidate of uh, the National Party in Washington. And uh, they had a very interesting conversation. So we know what his inclination is. He's a golpista. He's a coup plotter. He he plotted the coup the coup in Bolivia. He's been you know um, leading what happened in Ecuador, right, against President Correa. Let's not forget that either. And so it, it's time we we change the OAS for something that dignifies the people of Latin America. This guy Almagro he has to go, and so does the OAS. We need a, a real organization of the people of. Latin America, not what we have right now. That's a that's a extension of the Pentagon and the Department of State. We don't need that. So, um, Leo, I wonder. You know, uh, we've been talking just briefly about the OAS, and Leo is leading um, a project at 
code pink that is, um, you know, shifting the OAS. And I, Leo lost his camera, but I think he's with us. Um, I think you still have your audio. I do still have it. Sorry about so, the camera. Great. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> no, and just briefly. So, you know, as, as folks know who've been following Code Pink, we've been calling for Artemagodos resignation for almost two years now since the coup in Bolivia. And it's kind of this, this uh, campaign to get rid of Almagro to replace the OAS. We're also starting the campaign to get rid of the statue of Queen Isabella, which is at the, right next to the front door of the OAS. It's a gross, gross symbol of racism and genocide and imperialism and has no place in front of the OAS. Uh, and we're starting an open letter, uh, hopefully to be signed by prominent activists and intellectuals and journalists and, and others and politicians. So I'm gonna invite all of you to sign, of course, mm -hmm. and soon we'll, we'll open it up to the general public. But I just wanted to let folks know that's in the works from Code Pink. So thank you so much. So everyone, any closing comments on the evening? I know for me, it's just been such an honor to be among all of you this evening, really a joy. I, I would propose that we do this again early December and evaluate what, what November in the Americas looks like today and what it looks like the first of December because we have, there's a real opportunity for uh, the Americas to look quite different in, within the next 30 days. And it'd be great to revisit yeah, just, after we see the after we see the change in Honduras, <laughs> I, I would like to just make one observation that uh, for those who are very concerned about the flow of refugees from Latin America north, let's note that there are, have been very few uh, refugees coming from Nicaragua, which mm -hmm. is practically uh, has food security, despite uh, the fact that they're still. Uh, uh, poverty to be overcome. Uh, so if the U.S. seeks to undermine these elections in Nicaragua, uh, they can expect to have even a larger uh, refugee issue at the border. So the very process of meddling in the internal affairs of sovereign nations uh, ends up having consequences that lead to double victimization. First, Hondurans, for example, are victimized in their own country by the disaster of the post-coup, and then once again, when they seek refuge in the United States. Thank you, Fred, for threading the needle on that. And how the, I mean, when we talk about root causes of, um, of migration, we often don't talk about US foreign policy. We'll talk about climate change, state violence, economic, underdevelopment of economics, but US foreign and economic policy is a huge, huge uh, creation of migration. So listen, everyone, um, thank you for your participation. Diddy, Diddy can, yeah. I, yeah. can I give a final thought? Of um, course. I just want to say that not only in Honduras are we going for a definite uh, political transformation that is a systemic transformation that we call mm -hmm. for. And this is why um, we are, we are, we are having a woman run for president. So not only are we going to um, be transforming the reality of our country, but the face of um, having the first female president is the first signal of that. 
And I don't want to forget Haiti in this entire conversation about displaced people and the way that the United, the United States treats our government, treats people once they get to their, to their borders. Look at the, at the horrendous crisis of the Haitian um, displaced people at the US-Mexican border recently. And it is the same with the Central Americans, particularly the ones that are coming from what they call the North Triangle. So let's pay close attention to what is going on in Honduras because Honduras um, has been a country that historically, we don't really pay that much mind to because Honduras has always been subdued by US uh, imperialism and capitalism. We have been the military platform of the United States for all these years, but Honduras has been in rebellion for the past 12 years and Honduras is fighting for real independence away from the dictates of Washington, uh, trying to find its own destiny, the way the Hondurans want it, not the way that Washington wants to impose it. So let's pay close attention to what is going on there because a lot of wonderful things could come out of what happens after the 28th. And we're very hopeful. We're not triumphant, but we are we're feeling victorious because we're going, it's the third time around and we have learned a lot and we have prepared a lot for what is coming on the 28th. But we expect great things to happen. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank you. So everyone, I really, I hope we can, we can, we can have, you know, part two of this conversation early December and really uh, look at, um, at the results of the elections this month. So like we, when we opened the conversation tonight, we said uh, we've got elections in, in Nicaragua on the 7th, Argentina on the 14th, uh, Chile and Venezuela on the 21st, and Honduras on the 28th. So um, a real opportunity for transformation and, and I'd love the chance to evaluate all those election results in 30 days. So I wanted to, I want to thank all of you, Fred Mills, Camila Mejia, Leonardo Flores, and, and you, Lucy, Lucy Pagawada Quesada. Thank you for a terrific conversation. Thank you for your activism and your knowledge and your friendship. I love all of you and I'm so happy you all had time this evening for this event. And um, let's talk in December. I also should tell, uh, remind our audience, you've been watching What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region. We broadcast every Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific on Code Pink YouTube Live. And a shout out to Lucy's program on WBAI every Sunday, 1 p.m. Eastern. And Lucy has been gracious enough to ask me to uh, give an update from Managua on election day here. So um, I'll be happy to join you on, um, on Sunday thank for you. a few minutes at least, I hope. Yes. So, um, so thank you everyone. And thank you to thank our you, audience. We had a thank, thank you, Terry. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Lucy. So Hasta la victoria siempre. Hasta, Hasta la, la victoria. victoria. <laughs> Venceremos. Venceremos.